From KYW News Radio 1039 FM, this is Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Presented by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Hello, I'm Raquel Williams. Welcome to Bridging Philly. Many organizations throughout the city are doing what they can to make a dent in the gun violence epidemic. One organization founded by a young man who's had his own struggles in the community is called Young Chances Foundation. We'll hear the story of Tariq Glasgow and how he went from gang culture to providing essential resources to help his community thrive and keep kids off the streets. You have to give them something that they probably don't have, and that's patience and understanding. Just before Black History Month kicked off, the Mother Bethel AME Church received a grant that will help with much needed renovations and that's coming right on time as the church was just recently vandalized. Charity Howard went to church to speak with Reverend Mark Kelly Tyler to learn more about the changes. And it's not just simply about the aesthetics, it's a beautiful church building, but the idea of Mother Bethel and what it means and what it speaks to is much more critical. All that and more coming up on Bridging Philly. This is Bridging Philly from KYW News Radio 1039 FM. Young Chances Foundation was founded in 2012 in South Philadelphia. It's an organization dedicated to providing urban children with the opportunity to have fun, strengthen family relationships, build positive leadership skills through peer motivated activities, and have resources to help assist with general to higher education. Now, part of the mission is also to foster safety, reduce teen violence, and alleviate some of the neighborhood tensions within the community. It has since expanded to so much more, providing services and other essential resources to help reduce poverty in South Philadelphia particularly, and of course, surrounding communities. The founder of this organization has quite a story. He is with us now to tell us more. Welcome, Tyreek Glasgow. Thank you for the invitation, Raquel. Young Chances Foundation has so many resources under its roof. Love bags, clothing yes. banks, school supplies, uh, food deliveries for seniors, um, Thanksgiving feeding programs, educational programs, on and on and on. And it is so admirable because it comes from a place of genuine love and concern for your community. And you yourself, Reek, had a rough start as a young man growing up, um, hanging on Taney and Tasker streets. Talk about your early involvement in gang culture. How old were you when that started? It's around 11, 12. 11, 12. Yeah. I started off old, so to say, in this life. Um, fortunately, I was blessed growing up. You know, a lot of people you know, try to deny the good starts, you know. My grandma, my mother raised me in 110, where it's about 20, 30 of us living in a household, but we never oh. understood poor. We never understood poverty. We never understood the trauma because of the plate that my grandma provided. Yes. You know, I didn't understand, you know, her providing food every morning and, and making sure that education was priority and, and sticking and communicating with your family, even though you don't like them. You know, you have <laughs> to communicate. You have to, you know, give them something that they probably don't have, and that's patience and understanding. And that's where, for me, when I got older, sometimes you, you, you tend to sway from that. And I, I always pointed the finger at not having a father or living in a neighborhood where it was always violence, but my foundation was always there, and I turned away from that. Hmm. Yeah, grandmothers have a knack, I have yeah. to say, for creating miracles and making you not even realize or feel that, you know, there's poverty or what she had to do to get that meal on the table, you know. So hats off to grandmas for that, of course. 
So you said that you made your own choice, and that was to become involved in gang culture. Why? It was easy. It was, you know, to use your skills in a, a negative way is something that our community is used to doing. We're not used to using our skills to empower ourselves or mm. to build someone else up. Normally, it's to tear your community down or to make someone feel less than because of what you want to feel internally. And for me, I wanted to change that. So you said you pointed to the fact that you didn't have a father figure. So were there individuals that were in the gang culture that reached out to you and showed you that love that you felt that you were missing at the time, even though it was a gang culture, they embraced you and made you feel like you were a part of something? Sometimes it's, it's two ways because you become that father figure also. Um, there's no manual to the street life, so to say. If some of the young men in the community see you in a certain light, they see you with the clothing, they see you being able to carry yourself in a certain way, you become that old head, so to say. Mm. And sometimes eternally you don't want to be what you was missing. So you don't want to be the one that talked down on them. So you try to tend to show them that, yes, I'm doing something wrong, but don't be like me. Don't do that. And you take on not a burden, but another sense of stripes and pride in your community that sometimes is not beneficial long-term. So they see you on the corner every day. They see you pulling up in cars. They seeing you interacting with, you know, their, their community, their families, and you're coming in the house and you're doing those things. And they're like, I want to be like him. Mm-hmm. But they don't see the police officers, you being stopped, the injuries, the shootouts, the bells, the the loss of sleep, you know, just the trauma that's, that's in your life every day. They don't see that. They just see the good things. You know, for me, that's that's the real issue that we're dealing with, you know, today, seeing that instant gratification. Mm-hmm. Taney and Tasker Streets, these are blocks that you, quote unquote, owned. Yes. And these are blocks that you lived for. Um, and were willing to defend the block. Obviously, you were in the life where you were dealing drugs, correct? Yes. Okay. And that, of course, comes with its own risks and and things that you have to do to protect your quote-unquote business and you try to support your family and do what you're doing by doing that. Talk about that life a little bit, and I'm sure that these are things that you tell young people, your experiences that you've had on the corners and being in that life. Talk about that life and the mentality at that moment uh, in time when you were fully engaged? So one of the programs that I run now is called Hustle. It's how you survive through life every day. And during that time, that was part of the team, the culture in your community. A lot of us young men were trying to survive every day. What mm-hmm. was your hustle? It sometimes wasn't just the drugs. It was you were going to fix cars. You was the electrician, but you didn't have your license. You wasn't certified. So this was a way for you to make a quick buck. Mm-hmm. In a drug game, you will have a sort of hierarchy of who could put you in a direction to feed your family. Sometimes it's not just the negative. It's like, hey, this guy, he got his house right there. He's with Section 8. They're not going to come fix it, bro. Can you come fix that? And the respect from you being in the community, being in the, the neighborhood, they know that they can depend on you, sort mm-hmm. of say. And that builds a different level of support and connection within your community because it's not just the negative that they see. They know that, hey, we can go in that corner, we can say, hey, I'm I'm a little short, they will get my kids some Pampers. And that $5 will stop them from going into the store and maybe just taking it off the shelves and looking at the owner like, what you gonna do? Right. 
So for us, what's building that bridge, sort of say to say, hey, how do you want to survive? Do you need food? Do you need clothing? Do you need an extra couple dollars so you don't have to go rob the neighbor down the street? Because we know that neighbor. We know the grandma that's walking down the street. We know the mom who, who may not have that male figure in there, but as a community, we need to protect them. Bridging Philly continues in a moment. Back to Bridging Philly from KYW News Radio 1039 FM. How old were you when you first picked up a firearm? 12. How did that all come about? I was actually buying it for another older gentleman in the community because he was going through something and mm -hmm. no one really dealt with him. And he asked me, and I, I felt as though he was the underdog in the situation. And wanted to help him out and I asked a friend like hey you got extra piece and he was like yeah how much he got and I was like hey I don't got much but because of my influence so to say it mm -hmm. was because you asked he cool yeah. and you know that was the first time I touched and I passed off to the person that was it. You know people often ask you know how do you get access to guns you hear you are 12 years old you knew exactly where to go uh, you had those resources at that time and you were able to supply someone with a handgun. You know, these are the stories that people don't get to hear. I'm marveling at the fact that I'm thinking of my little one, my 11-year-old. Like, would she even know <laughs> how to, how to uh, have access to something like this? Sometimes it's not, you know, what you know is who you know. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't know the dynamics of the caliber of it and all this, but they took in consideration that I was 12, that they didn't give me the 45. They gave me the 32. So it was different to knowing that, hey, you don't need this big job, you know. So even as me being the old head in the community to the people that I'm support, I still had other people who looked out for me. What are mm. you doing with this big? You still need to protect. You still need to have your connections. But this is too big of a plate for you to carry right now. Yeah. You're a father. Yes. Three girls. Three girls. How old were you when you had your first one? Um, 22. 22. So this was when you were out of the life at that point? Um, actually, I watched my first daughter um, grow up when I was in jail. Her first five years, I was incarcerated. Okay. Um, she was born actually in July, and I was arrested in September. Okay. Let's um, rewind and go right before um, the point where you were uh, arrested. Um, I know there were some things that happened on the streets um, that— kind of pivoted you before you went into uh, the system, you were shot 11 times. Yes. Now, was this all one situation, a couple of different situations? Three separate times. The first two times were two, and the last time was seven. Can you visit those moments at all, if, if you could? Yeah, it was part of the journey, you know, for me. And it's not to make light. It's part of your street resume, sort of say. Mm. Like, if you don't have certain ingredients in your meal it's not going to taste good it's not going to look real right and for me being in jail getting shots having respect not telling those are the ingredients for you to be a leader or run a particular neighborhood or block because you have to have certain things that is needed for people to view or respect you you know you get shot you go to jail you have kids you don't tell you do those things and it's like okay this is what you're supposed to do mm-hmm the first time you were shot, how old were you? Fifteen. Fifteen. While you were in 
that life on the streets, doing what you're doing, knowing that you have to defend yourself and there, you know, you have to look over to your shoulder at any time something could happen. Were you scared? No, because for real, I think I go back to my foundation and it's, I always believe I was covered, you know, and you know, a lot of us in the community, we have that upbringing, you know, that regardless of where we're at in life, we know our foundation. And, you know, my, my grandma, she, she left with me with um, scriptures, Proverbs 3, um, verse 5 through 6, and it was trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and in all your ways acknowledge him and he would direct your path. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of times I didn't pay attention to it because during Sunday school and all that, you know, you had to sing your songs, you had to yeah. do scripture, but grandma always, when it was my turn, I had to do this one or doing Bible study. It was, everybody was on Matthew and doing all, but it was, like, what, what, what's that problem? And I would have to go back to it. And then I started to break down, like, what is trust? Mm-hmm. You know, what is your faith? What is those things? And that's what I was doing in the streets. Like I was believing that I was going to make the deal. I was believing that I was going to do these things to make sure that people was done. And it wasn't in a capacity of doing it right. Mm-hmm. And that's why our slogan really is not what you do, it's how you do it. Right. You can go out here and network, you can go out here and do all those things, but if you're not doing it for the good, it's not going to last. Right. Obviously this is seen in how you have pivoted using all the resources you were using for the wrong things to do what you're doing now, which is completely admirable. Being shot 11 times, Reek, not a lot of people are shot 11 times and live to tell it. So when you say you were covered, you were covered. That's why I, I really believe that my grandma, she knew what she was instilling in me. Like mm. I was hard-headed, I was stubborn, but I was a representation of the family. I was a representation of, you know, the one that you may throw away. You know, you may think that this is the one who don't have, because I don't have degrees, I don't have the titles, all those things, but you have to have a strong foundation. Yeah. And for my family and for the people in the community, I, I tried to resemble them. Yeah. You're going to have your traumas, you're going to go through your issues, but start to build you a strong foundation and things will, will work out for the best. I read uh, somewhere that you said that your incarceration um as a young man, saved you. Yes. How so? Because it gave me an opportunity to stop pointing the finger and then look in the mirror. I had an opportunity to stop saying, oh, I don't have a father, my grandma passed, my mom doesn't have this. My and, and it was, you can read, you can write, you can articulate, you can save, you're not a socialize. Why are you pointing the finger? Because you're not out there to get a job. You're not finishing school. You're not doing those things that you can do as a person. And when I started to look at myself like, well, I can build a business plan up because I have run a business. May not have been the right one, right? but to figure out a mission, a vision, how much each person would need to improve their quality of life. What are some of the issues in their health that we can help them out with? Do they have asthma? Do they have some issues that we can go and try to figure out? I don't need bags. Let me get an asthma pump. I don't need a gun. Let me get some brooms and shovels so we can sweep this stuff up because we're noticing that asthma is one of the highest things in our community and that deals with conflict uh, with your thinking, with your aggregate things, with your mental. So it was really stepping back and saying all of the things that we deal with in the community that was negative are some of the things that we can improve on in a positive way. Yeah. How old were you when your grandmother passed? 17. 
17. I was my junior year at George Jr. And she passed away literally like the day before, like I really was committed to finishing school there. Her, her last, I'm going to say request for words was graduate. She knew that like I wouldn't be able to graduate if I was home or doing those things. And that was the first trip of banning. I, I wouldn't even say George Jr. was my incarceration, but it was my separation to find myself, to find that I can walk this journey alone, that to finish something. And that's what I did. I took those two years at George Jr. and I wanted to complete the deal. I, I went in there at the ninth grade, like I completed all four years in two years. I did that because I knew I had to finish when I started. What was your grandmother's name? Roberta Chance. That's where our organization gets their name from. Like I knew that if a kid could just have a young chance at the foundation that my grandma gave me, that they'll be all right. talk about the founding of Young Chances Foundation. Um, you were incarcerated. You're looking at things. You described how you can use the resources and the knowledge and skills you have that you were doing on the streets to make things better. Talk about how this organization actually came about. So it was a bittersweet founding. Um, a young man by the name of Nasser Livingston, um, Lou and I, you know, lost his, his mother, father, worked four or five jobs a week, little brothers out there. And um, there is a rec center down the street from Taney Street. And you know, one day he comes down running, he cussing, snapping, all oh, this and that. And I'm like, bro, what are you doing? Like, chill. He like, they won't let us play it. And I'm like, nah, chill. Like, what, what are you talking about? He like, they, they playing football, they won't let us play. I'll take that drill all the time. I'm like, bro, chill. You can't do that. So... I said, all right, come on, we're going to walk down there and see. Because, you know, he started saying some stuff. I'll punch one. I'm like, bro, come on, let's go see what you're talking about. So mm-hmm. we go down to the rec center, and Sky Bill, who I love and admire, man, to this day, he, he basically was honest. He said, Tyreek, this kid's bad, man. They, they take the ball, they run around, they spend the little ones. So, so, so I'm looking, and I'm like, I believe you. I turn around, they're gone. Like, little Nile's gone. <laughs> so I'm like, so he just left me here. <laughs> so I go back to Taney on the block, and I start talking to him, and, you know, I seen – me a little now because he was frustrated not for playing because people didn't understand his story Mm -hmm. like yes I'm taking a ball but I want to be on the team I don't know how to do the application I don't know my mom not there to do that so if I take this ball run are you going to run to the house so you can hear my story and sometimes we don't never get a chance sometimes it's when you get in trouble you'll get the resources a parent can get help but before that is who was there to tell this story for not only this kid, but for the community. And when I made a deal with him, I said, listen, this will be the deal. I'll go down there and I'll sign you up for him. Mm-hmm. And now I said, man, I only want to play. <laughs> it's my homies. And it gave me the reason to move. And I said, well, who? And he pointed on the block and on Taney Street, it was about 30 kids. Wow. And literally, like, when you're walking by faith and not by sight, I'm seeing all this stuff, but the literally seeds are right there. So I go back to the rec center and I say, listen, this will be the deal. I'll sign up. They can play. And he said, no, you can't do that because parents, they need to sign a John. And I said, well, all right, well, if I can't do one kid, how about I bring a whole team on 
And out coached me, said, you might be on to something. <laughs> and I said, all right. I said, so when is practice days? And I said, as a matter of fact, I don't really want them to be around practice. Can we get our own day, a time? And he said, without a permit, and you're good to go. Okay. So when I leave the Breck Center, I'm going back to the block. I'm like, what the hell did I just get myself into? <laughs> like, what just happened? What is going on? And this was my first deal that was positive with the kids. Yeah. I said, I'll make a deal with y'all. I will go to the rec center with y'all every day. But the deal is for those two hours, you can't shit fuck them. And they took a deep breath. They looked at each other like it was literally like a huddle, like, <sighs> okay. <laughs> and they literally was like, okay. And I was like, all right. They said we could play. This is what we're going to do. We're going to put together a team. Whoever y'all figure out who is what. When I hand him the papers, he said, so who are y'all? And I was like, uh, we take, he was like, uh, not Tanny Street because they use And then I or literally, he said, well, tell me tomorrow. And I went back to the block and I was just thinking, and, you know, my grandma, she came at my head again. I was just like, you know what? I can't play with this. Because if somebody played with me growing up, I wouldn't be in the situation that I am. Right. And I knew that if I was going to do this, I had to go all the way in. I was like, if I had a little chance and I was just playing with some stuff, but then, you know, Young Chances and the foundation came up and I went back to Bill and I was like, listen, Young Chances, this is it. But from there, he was like, all right, so when do Young Chances play and all this and that? And I was like, this is be the deal. And they have kept a end of the bargain. The kids have, anytime we go into an event or to a program or to any place that's not there, they understand that the bigger picture, like I make deals with them to understand like it's not about the money it's about how you're going to look after this like if you can't afford something or you can't communicate something you have a friend you have someone that's going to walk with you and not judge you and not point the finger at you and that's going to look in the mirror and say mm -hmm. hey you're not the only one that can't count your change it's cool and people take advantage of you like people know when you can't do something to take and you don't have to feel weak you don't have to feel as though now you have to physically communicate to them that you're stronger. Right. This is what you do. Let's go read. Let's go do a little after-school program together because we know that the hours from four to eight is one of the highest crimes in our times in our city. Mm. So what we do, we switch and we say, listen, we're going to provide a safe place for our kids. During those times, this is what you need. Sometimes it's the food. Sometimes it's the clothing. Sometimes it's, it's just sitting there so they can watch TV or they can access the internet and go online and see some of their friends. And just seeing them change from being able to like just fight and fright in their head, they can say, you know what, I'll get some cheese fries. Cool. Yeah. That's what you do. How did the neighborhood center come about? I mean, it's great that you were able to, you know, have a place of, of refuge for the kids to come and do different things. How did that come about? Uh, again, being in good favor, man. Um, Miss Deb, who I, I owe a debt of gratitude to, her son, Trey Ball Mike, from the neighborhood, playing ball growing up. Um, he was actually um, one of the victims, Don Tanera Borum, who was a three-year-old that was shot. Oh, wow. Getting her hair braided. Um, oh. We do the garden. We do a lot of things in, in memory of her, and that was his home. And his mother watched me grow up, the bad, the good, the whatever, and um, he was shot in his head and had some medical challenges, you know. Um, and she moved out the state, but the home was still there, and this is how I know God is. The bigger picture is all him because the house is on the corner and Taney Street is in the eye shot of it, and 
we're doing events and one of the days I leave like the popcorn machine out there where he has a backdrop and all that stuff and our daughter baby five and all I'm still living there so I'm like hey put it in there so it's the daughter leave just a couple months she called my phone hey boy you got some stuff in my house yes Miss Dave I'll get it out there so I said can I get to the end of the week she said oh yeah I just want you to know that you get it out my house you know I said all right Miss Dave I got you so Miss Dave calls me back probably like a couple days later before Friday and says are you still doing that stuff with them kids? And I'm like, yeah. I said, she was like, <laughs> what you be like? All of it? Like, yeah, I'd be saying your stuff. I was like, yeah. I said, Mr. Hell, I'm going to get this stuff. She was like, no, well, this, what you doing with the building? And I was like, no. I said, literally, I didn't do nothing with the building. I just put stuff in there to hold it. So we, she was like, all right, well, this what you do. And she told me like how much the bills were and things like this. She was like, you got any money? I was like, I ain't got nothing. You know, and she was like, I'll work with you. You know, and this is a blessing. And she told me a price. And I'm in my head, I knew that I can pick up and call some negative food. Mm. But my God, he, he, we got a connection and grants. And all we had to do was walk. All we had to do was provide the resources and the information for our community. I started getting jobs and work. And I worked for the district attorney office for five years with no degree to run the gun violence task force. You know, and getting funds to support the building was how it changed. And wow. we took that same building as an image in a community because they knew what the house was. It was the house where the young boys was at, where they were trapping out of, where a lot of the negative stuff was going on because mom was gone. You know, once mom left, she went out of state. That was the house. But it, again, another deal became the community. Like I sat down with the players, like, listen, y'all know what we do. And I swear they all was like, whatever you need, bro. Wow. You know, we got you. And it was no snitch, rat. You know, the culture I said, we did with the police, we did with politicians. They right. said, bro, whatever you need to make sure we cool, we got you. So my security is the community. Mm. You know, the resources and the stuff that come in. That's why our mentor, Terry Carpenter, always said, you keep what you have by giving it away. This is true. The only way that you're going to stay blessed is by blessing others. And in our community, that's how we do it. We wake up from sunup to sundown to make sure that the doors are always open, that whoever needed a blessing, whoever is going through some trauma or some work could get some type of friendship and relationship here. How old are you, Tariq? I'm a young 40. Yes, you are a young 40. And what lessons you have learned and this lived experience you have is just unmatched. And um, I'm sure this lived experience is how you are able to easily relate to and understand the stories of and the struggles of the youth that you work with. I believe it's a generational relationship that needs to be bridged. I think a lot of times people think that the older you are, you get away from the culture and the, the skills of the next generation. But I believe sometimes it's just identifying the goal, mm. you know, identifying peace, identifying love and putting that on the same field, you know, and for us as a community and culture, don't pull or change the goalposts, you know, don't change it and have a, a higher um, rank or authority for this generation knowing about trauma, about love, about communication. Cause I grew up, you know, I'm 40 now. My mother didn't tell me she loved me verbally until I was 29 years old. Wow. And I know my mother loves me. Mm -hmm. I didn't go days without eating. Always had a roof over my head. Right. Seeing my mother go to work. But the day that she told me she loved me, all other things changed. Because it was like, not only did you show me, but you're telling me now to hear, because I know 
it's hard for her to say that because of what she went through. Because as a black woman, not having her foundation there and for her to say, you know what, let me tell my son I love him. It helps me to go and tell other young boys that I see that I love you, bro. Right. I tell my young boys all the time. I look and they text, bro. I'm on the page looking. Yeah, I remember. Now you out here trip. It's cool. I'm gonna let you in. Your cool. I still love you. If you need, something, call me. Your PO on your call me. Mm-hmm. I had no problem putting my name on the line for y'all because I know it's hard sometimes for us as a community to just let that emotion go. Yeah. To let that pride go. To let that trauma release and say, hey, yes. I love you. Right. It's cool. You are breaking these generational curses. It's, it's, that's what you're doing. And just being in their lives is allowing them to thrive just the way you are now. What do you think about the state of gun violence today in Philadelphia? When you hear these different stories and you see them there every day, what are some of the things that go through your mind? I believe it's a talking point for society to point the finger. Hmm. Because gun violence isn't new. True. You know, when we talk about violence, we have to talk about the generational trauma that has happened gun is just a tool now but you know there was fights it was the gang war era there was all types of errors where violence had its point of this has to stop what i believe in this generation no one wants to have the conversation with this community this generation that is not their fault when we talk about data when we talk about the marching when we talk about all the things that the legends and heroes have done that was to prevent where we're at today. When you don't provide yesterday, this is the result you get today. Yeah. When you look in the community and you say, ask one of the young men who wake up to say they want to kill someone. None of them. Right. But they would tell you, I need to protect myself, right? My baby mom need clothes. Right. The kid ain't got nothing to eat. They tell me I can't walk the four blocks away, but yet they want me to get a job. Some of the young women, they ain't pointing the finger. They're trying to figure out who do I trust? Rick, what is in the future for Young Chances Foundation? Building more bridges in Philly, mm. you know. Um, <laughs> making sure that, you know, we're at a table of success, um, working with the academics, um, making sure that the research and data represents the communities that they're talking about, making sure that, you know, law enforcement has its right menu that they're talking about. We work closely with the Philadelphia Police Department and the 17th Police District, not only just on engagement, but for them to see the long-term effects of their services, of how they can not only implement stuff, but have consistent progress. Um, We've been working with the police department for a long time, but it's really to see what officers or community members are going to change the policy. Um, Working with the elected officials, having junior um, funding streams that come down for community groups and leaders who don't have the organizational capacity that can open up accounts and things like that. So we're working to build up more young chances and more reeks to make sure that we're not on a menu of failure. Absolutely. And how can people find out more about Young Chances Foundation? And we're on social media, Facebook as Young Chances. Instagram is at Young Chances Foundation. We're on Twitter, uh, Young Chances. And our website is up as youngchances.org. But also just going into the data. Like I really wanted us to this year and moving forward to focus on impact, like how we're going to impact the households and the families that we're dealing with. Is the therapy working? Is the food being provided on a consistent basis? Is the summer camp a safe place that's helping that educational layoff in the summertime? Because if they're not getting it during the nine months, what can we can improve on during the three months that they're off? So impacting our community in a more uh, efficient way is what we're trying to do for tomorrow. Wow. 
Terrific plan. Continued success. And you know your grandma is smiling down on you. Thank you know she is. Thank you. I appreciate that. Tariq Glasgow, thank you so much for joining us in Bridging Philly. Thank you. Bridging Philly continues in a moment. Back to Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Welcome back to Bridging Philly. One of the most historic staples in the city of Philadelphia is the Mother Bethel AME Church, which just received a grant to help with renovations. More now on what's to come with Shara in the City. Thank you so much for having us here, Reverend Tyler. Standing outside this church is almost like being a witness to history. And I'm really excited about talking to you, not only about the renovations uh, for the church, but also about the role that Mother Bethel plays in American history and global history. Yeah, so first of all, Mother Bethel as a congregation is approaching uh, over 230 years as a congregation. We've had four buildings. The first building went up in 1794, which was a small blacksmith shop that was converted to a church. The current building uh, is 134 years old, and we're just really excited because if you can imagine maintaining anything that's 134 years, uh, there's a lot of work that goes into it. This grant is gonna help us address some deferred maintenance on the one hand, but we also believe that it's going to inspire donors and others uh, other foundations to jump in and do some of the other work that we've always been uh, visioning. So you have all of this planned out. This is allocated to the T, of course, starting with the windows, the stained glass windows being at the top of the list. But this grant is going to allow you to do much more. Yeah, so, so we actually have a comprehensive plan that's pretty ambitious. It would be the biggest building plan uh, for Mother Bethel since 1890, which is to uh, place an addition on the backside of the church that would allow us to expand our museum, expand our archive, uh, expand offerings for the community around us. Many people, you know, rent our building. Uh, we're a destination for weddings and for uh, other events as well. So we really want to be able to be a better partner in the community. It's a, uh, it's a bit pricey, but again, you know, there, there's nothing that attracts people who want to give than something that has momentum already. Uh, we were very fortunate before the pandemic to have plans drawn up by the Community Design Collaborative, which is a nonprofit in Philadelphia, where they actually get architects, engineers, consultants, and cost estimators to come in and draw out your project for you, your dream. And so we have, you know, a, a report that's over 100 pages with drawings and everything else that really details what that vision looks like. So let's talk about this grant. What did you get? Who gave it to you? And how is this all gonna work? We received from the National Historic Trust from their African-American Cultural Action Fund and a very special fund that is a part of that that is targeting African-American historical churches. Uh, so out of that carve out, we were able to receive $90,000 to address uh, deterioration around our stained glass windows. Uh, Mother Bethel has, I mean, they're just, there are a lot of windows around that building. People focus on the, you know, the big ones that face Lombard and Pine and Sixth Street. But when you actually step back and count them, I mean, there are numerous uh, smaller windows that are stained glass. They have uh, wood trimming on some, others have metal. And over the years, they take a beating. 
Uh, they were last addressed in the late 1980s, early 1990s, and so it's time again. Now, it's not just an aesthetic thing either. You know, one thing I want to point out is that everybody's been, and rightfully so, talking about conserving energy and being better stewards of the environment. And so by addressing that, we'll also be able to make the building uh, a better, um, better used for all of our like heating and cooling issues. And I should add that uh, of the 31 uh, churches that received grants, 10 of them were AME churches from all across the country. So when I saw the list with, with colleagues and people that I know, like Jacob's Chapel in Mount Laurel, that was an underground railroad site, and Big Bethel in Atlanta, which is just a few blocks away from where Dr. King grew up, it was just an amazing, uh, amazing, um, it just made it even more significant for us. All right, so let's rewind a little bit. Let's revisit some history here. Let's talk about Mother Bethel AME's role in Black history, not just in Philadelphia, not just in the United States, but across the world, oceans. Mother Bethel is considered to be not only the cradle of African Methodism, so the AME Church, this is our founding congregation, uh, founded here by Richard Allen, a Philadelphian who had been born enslaved, uh, but purchased his freedom. This one congregation that he had the vision for is now on five continents, 39 countries, and I think the 40th country is prepared to come on board to be a part of the AME Church, so it's still growing. But locally, and then to other people who are not AME, the Mother Bethel story is also about really a place that framed for us what resistance to white supremacy looks like in all of its forms. In our early days, Richard Allen was calling out for the end of slavery in writing and publicly. They, the members helped to lead boycotts of enslaved goods or goods that were produced by the enslaved. They were uh, active and a part of the Underground Railroad. During the Civil War, Mother Bethel opened its doors for Frederick Douglass to come in to recruit uh, black Union soldiers to go and fight in the 54th and 55th uh, Massachusetts colored infantry on and on and on through the Great Migration, through the Civil Rights Movement. And so it has always been a beacon of um, hope and inspiration for people who want to fight that which they know um, to be wrong. And I'll say that we receive international visitors every Sunday and through the week for our church services, through our museum, through our archive. And very often the people who show up are not even African of African descent. Obviously, we receive people from Africa and throughout the Caribbean and the U.S., but we also receive Europeans. We receive persons from Asian uh, nations. We receive people from everywhere. And what they say to us when they come is that we wanted to come to the place to see where the, the place where Richard Allen is buried because his story uh, is one that really inspires people. And much in the way that a Dr. King inspired those in the 20th century and those of us today who know his story, Allen's life was very much like that for people in the 19th century. And of course, thinking about the political climate now, it's very regressive. But the church and the congregation, they're no stranger to any of this. I mean, so today, when you kind of think about what's happening, the, the climate in our country, uh, you know, the attack on democracy, small d, uh, not the, necessarily the party itself, that uh, for people who have long institutional memory, for, you know, like our docents who give tours all the time, some people may think, oh my God, the sky is falling, we've never gone through this before. 
but Mother Bethel remembers. You know, it like is a, as people often say, if these walls could talk, these walls would tell you a story that does not look too dissimilar from what's happening in today's world. And so we, we've learned a lot of lessons about how to resist these moments because these moments always come. People forget that after the Civil War ended, that that's when Jim Crow started. You know, there was a small lull and a gap a few years between the Civil War and the end or the beginning of Jim Crow. But Octavius Caddo, Philadelphia hero, was killed blocks away from Mother Bethel on South Street. Why? Simply for trying to cast his vote. That happened in the 1870s. That was not during the period of slavery, that was after slavery had ended. And so for those of us who understand the history, we recognize that every time, you know, black people in this country have an advance and take two steps forward, there's someone that wants to drag us back three steps backward. And so it is always a push and a pull and that we can never uh, rest on our laurels. And so it still stands as a testament, again, not just simply about where we've come from, but it is an example and it's inspiration for resisting and fighting whatever those forms of repression look like for each and every generation. So this grant really is going to help you and the church do what the church does best, pull together the community. So the fact is that what makes this grant so important is that it helps to preserve Mother Bethel, not just simply the building, but the idea. So, I mean, what would it look, what would, what would the city have looked like without a Mother Bethel in the 21st century, where it is right now, standing and occupying the oldest parcel of land continuously held by African Americans? We say that every week because we recognize how tenuous land ownership has been for black people in this country. There was a time where black people were denied the right to actually own land. Today, we wrestle with land ownership through forces like gentrification. There was an effort to wipe Mother Bethel off of the map in the 1950s, I believe it was, where they proposed to put a highway that would match 676 right down Lombard Street from the Delaware to the Schuylkill Rivers. They then proposed it on South Street, which would have also been equally damaging to Mother Bethel and the entire community as well. But people fought back, and I'm glad that they fought back, and I'm glad they won because this congregation needs to be here in a moment like this. And so again, that's why preserving these type of treasures is critical. Again, it's not a, just simply about the aesthetics. It's a beautiful church building, but the idea of Mother Bethel and what it means and what it speaks to is much more critical. Critical indeed. Thank you so much, Reverend Tyler, for joining us here on Bridging Philly. All right, thank you. Thanks for joining us for Bridging Philly, brought to you by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Be sure to connect with us on X at Bridging Philly, myself at Raquel on Air, and you can reach Shara Day at Shara Day, that's D-A-E. For Shara Day Howard and our producer, Patty McMahon, I'm Raquel Williams. Be well. <laughs>